Thank you very much, Pastor John. Truly, again, it is a pleasure to be with you. And as Pastor John was saying, I can think of no more appropriate topic for communion than forgiveness and vice versa. So why don't we actually open our time in a word of prayer? Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, if you should count iniquity, who could stand? None of us, Lord. None of us. Lord, we have truly sinned and done what is wicked in your sight. And it is only by a miracle of grace that we can be in Christ Jesus and have redemption from our sins and forgiveness for our transgressions. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the reminder of all that he is for us and all that he has done for us in the bread and the cup. Thank you, Lord, for your word, which gives us light in this darkness. We pray that you would open it up to us this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Oh, we're having some technical difficulties here. Corey Tenboom was a Dutch watchmaker and Christian who helped many Jews escape the Nazi Holocaust of World War II. In 1944, when Corey was discovered, she and her whole family were sent to prison and then on to Ravensbrück concentration camp in Nazi Germany. It was a women's labor camp. Corey spent several months in the camp and she watched her sister die. Fifteen days after her sister's death, Corey was surprisingly released. Afterwards, she found out that she had been released due to a clerical error and that just one week after her release, all the women in her age group were sent to the gas chambers. Years later, in 1947, Corey traveled back to Germany, this time to speak at a church with the message that God forgives. Corey writes, When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. It came back with a rush. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. I remembered him in the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. He did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. I could not have been... It could not have been many seconds that, I, that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching in my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, 
I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arms, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. This powerful story illustrates just how moving forgiveness is, just how difficult forgiveness is, and just how necessary forgiveness is. Last week, we started examining biblical forgiveness. We discussed the principles of forgiveness and the pattern of forgiveness. And this week, we are going to finish our short series on forgiveness by looking at the priority of forgiveness, the paradigm, the practice, and the power of forgiveness. And I also want to note that, thankfully, there are many great resources out there on this topic. For instance, for these two messages, I've leaned heavily upon Brian Borgman, Jay Adams, Tim Keller, John Piper, and Thomas Watson, and I will commend them all to you for further study. I believe they will be very beneficial for your souls. Well, this morning, let's start with the biblical priority of forgiveness. When you read your Bible, you will notice that the Word of God clearly prioritizes our forgiveness of others. The Bible makes one thing absolutely clear about forgiveness. This is not optional. Forgiveness is not optional for Christians. This is not a choice. This is not a preference. This is a command. This is an imperative. Just as God has forgiven us, so we must Forgive others. You heard it from Corey Ten Boom herself. For I had to do it. I knew that. Last week, we looked at the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, I want to point out that this is actually the only petition of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus circles back around to later. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. This is the only part of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus circles back around to, that he repeats. This is the only petition of the Lord's Prayer that he actually comes back to in order to discuss and develop further. This underscores the importance of forgiveness. This emphasizes the significance of forgiveness. Now, when we read Matthew 6, 14 and 15, it looks like a condition for salvation, does it not? And it's easy for us Calvinists to say, well, I know I can't earn my way to heaven, so this passage doesn't apply to me. Or, I know I can't lose my salvation, so this passage doesn't apply to me. Well, if you do that, brothers and sisters, you have missed the real and present danger of this passage. If you do that, brothers and sisters, you have missed the entire point of this passage. Do you realize that we as Calvinists are the people who are most likely to not take this passage seriously? We take the promises of God seriously, but sometimes we don't take the, prom the threats of God seriously. Don't take the teeth out of this biblical warning. The point of the passage is, if you're not a forgiving person, then it may be that you're not a forgiven person. You see, I'm not talking about earning your salvation or losing your salvation. I'm talking about whether you are saved to begin with, whether you are saved in the first place. 
When we forgive others, it's not that we are earning our salvation. It's that we are evidencing that we are saved. When we forgive others, we show that we are forgiven. Brian Borgman says, Jesus is not talking about a matter of merit, but a matter of capacity. The forgiven forgive. Those who cherish what it means to be forgiven are forgiving. The minute I believe the gospel, I become not only forgiven, I become a forgiver. Forgiveness is not optional. You can't pick and choose who to forgive. You can't pick and choose when to forgive. Isn't there something hypocritical? Isn't there something incongruous for us Christians in this church to take communion and to hear about God's forgiveness of us, to hear about Christ's forgiveness of us, and then walk out of church and say, I will not forgive that person? Isn't there something incongruous about us, if we stand in church singing, we're the whole realm of nature mine, that we're a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, and then walk out of church and say, I refuse to forgive that person. So if you are an unforgiving person, there are only two possibilities. First, you're an unforgiving person because you are an unforgiven person. If you're, unfor if you're an unforgiving person, if you're a person who refuses to forgive somebody else, it may mean that you yourself do not know what it means to be forgiven by God. Don't take the teeth out of this biblical warning. The other possibility is, is that if you are an unforgiving person, then you have forgotten what it means to be forgiven. You have forgotten the sweetness of God's forgiveness of you. You have forgotten the gospel. So if you are an unforgiving person, if you are a person who holds on to resentment and bitterness with all of your heart, then the first question you need to ask yourself is, am I saved? Am I saved? And if the answer is yes, the next question you should ask yourself is, have I grown cold in my walk with Christ? Have I forgotten the gospel? Spurgeon says, to be forgiven is such sweetness that honey is tasteless in comparison with it. But yet, there is one thing sweeter still, and that is to forgive. As it is more blessed to give than to receive, so to forgive rises a stage higher in experience than to be forgiven. Now, if you're thinking with me and tracking with me, then this begs the next question. What if someone doesn't repent? What about forgiveness of an unrepentant person? What if someone doesn't ask for forgiveness? I hear you loud and clear. I hear the word of God loud and clear. I have to forgive. But what if someone doesn't repent? It's a very difficult question, somewhat debated. But I would like to approach it in four steps. When approaching the situation of forgiving an unrepentant person, first, do only as much as you can do. Do only as much as you can do. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So far as it depends on you, if possible. Brothers and sisters, scripture tells us that we can only control ourselves and our response. We cannot control others. It is your responsibility to honestly assess yourself 
and confess your sins, but it is not your responsibility to make that other person repent. It is your responsibility to pursue reconciliation with that person, but it is not your responsibility to make reconciliation happen. You cannot force the other person to repent. You cannot force the other person to reconcile. Secondly, check your heart. Psalm 86 verse 5 says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. And that should always be our heart attitude. Ready to forgive, wanting to forgive, desiring to forgive, desiring that other person's repentance and restoration. We looked at this last week. We should not be bitter in our hearts. We should not say in our hearts, well, I'm glad they haven't asked for forgiveness because I don't want to give it anyway. No, that's a bitter heart, not a forgiving heart, not a humble heart. Thirdly, pray to forgive. Pray to forgive. Now, I believe in this situation that we have to make a distinction between the prayer of forgiveness, which happens in our hearts before God, and the transaction of forgiveness, also known as reconciliation. Forgiveness of a repentant person looks different from forgiveness of an unrepentant person. Jesus tells us of the transaction of forgiveness in Luke 17, verse 3. He says, be on guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now here in Luke 17, Jesus is describing for us a situation of the full transaction of forgiveness, full reconciliation. Here we have an example of someone who repents. And in response to that, you forgive him. That's full forgiveness. That's the full transaction of reconciliation. This is the best case scenario. This is what we always want. This is what we pray for. But if I read my Bible correctly, even when a person does not repent, even when we cannot fully experience reconciliation, we should still forgive them before God. Mark 11.25 says, Whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone. Now, if I understand that correctly, that doesn't mean that, oh, if they come to you and ask you for forgiveness, then forgive them. That doesn't mean that, oh, I can just withhold forgiveness as long as they never come to me. No, that means that if there is anything against anyone, when you stand praying, you are to forgive whether they ask for it or not. Jesus prayed on the cross in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen, as he was being stoned to death, cried out with a loud voice in Acts 7, verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. These are prayers before God for forgiveness in our hearts, even if that person does not ask for forgiveness. J. Adams says, While forgiveness must not be granted to those who do not seek it repentantly, the one who has something against anyone may not continue to hold it against him in his heart. Before God in prayer, he is to forgive him. He must tell God that he will hold it against him no longer. He may not brood on it. But this forgiving in prayer in his own heart before God does not preclude his responsibility to pursue the matter with the offender. The one who has relieved his own mind and heart of the burden of the offense in prayer, growing out of a truly forgiving attitude, will have little difficulty in granting forgiveness to his brother when it is sought. And in the meantime, he will avoid the destructive results of resentment. We are to forgive others in our hearts before God, in prayer, even if they do not seek reconciliation 
with us. Fourth and last, trust the judgment of God. With those who don't repent, we must trust in God, the ultimate judge, the perfect judge. We can trust that the ultimate judge will pay back all wrongs done to us. Romans 12, 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. We so often struggle with bitterness because we desire to execute vengeance ourselves. But brothers and sisters, vengeance is God's. He will repay. If we trust God, the perfect judge, if we trust God to make wrong, to make right all the wrongs that have done to us, then it frees us to forgive and it frees us to let God execute the judgment. This is a promise of God. In fact, God will execute judgment better than we ever could. If you're talking about a fellow believer, then God has already taken care of it at the cross. Forgiveness is a matter of faith. Do you truly believe in the justice of the cross? Do you truly believe that God is dealing with those who are his, that he is chastising and disciplining those who are his? If you truly believe that, if you truly have faith in that, then we ought not to doubt the judge. John Piper says, if you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge. Give it up to God. Give it up to God. Be free to forgive. And if you're talking about an unbeliever, pray for that person's repentance. Pray for that person's salvation. And if they do not repent, then judgment is waiting for them at the judgment seat. Do you trust in the justice of God? Do you trust in the judgment of God? Vengeance is his. He will repay. It's not yours. It's his. Be free to forgive. Next, let's move on to the biblical paradigm of forgiveness. This is the biblical framework of forgiveness. As we discussed last week, our forgiveness of others mirrors God's forgiveness of us. We forgive in the way that God forgave us. And in this model, God balances grace with justice. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, a famous verse. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God balances grace with justice. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. But at the same time, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. This is the paradigm of God's forgiveness. MacArthur says... Too many people think of divine grace as a sort of benign forbearance by which God simply excuses sin and looks the other way. Scripture teaches no such thing. So how does God reconcile sinners to himself? On what grounds can he extend forgiveness to sinners? The answer is God himself has made his son, Jesus Christ, the atonement for our sins. The truth is glorious. There is a way to satisfy his justice without damning the sinner. He can both fulfill his promise of vengeance against sin and reconcile, extend complete forgiveness to sinners. And that is precisely what happened at the cross. This profound truth is the key to understanding divine forgiveness and God's forgiveness is the pattern by which we are to forgive. MacArthur points out several aspects of divine forgiveness. He emphasizes three aspects 
of forgiveness, grace, justice, and reconciliation, also known as relationship. Now, this is the uniqueness of Christian forgiveness. We forgive others, but we also deal with the sin. Just as God forgives us, but also deals with our sin. So in the paradigm of divine forgiveness, we have three facets that live in harmony with one another. And so likewise, we need to hold these three equally, in balance, in harmony with one another. First, we must be loving, gracious people. Secondly, we must seek justice such that sin is not glossed over. Third, we must do it all for the express purpose of relationship, of reconciliation. We must hold these three aspects together in harmony, in balance with one another. So let's see how this works. Well, last week we covered this portion of the triangle, grace, the pattern of divine forgiveness. Now let's look at how our forgiveness balances with justice. We honor justice by not letting sin go unaddressed. We do not simply sweep sin under the rug. Luke 17, verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Jesus is calling us to inner forgiveness and outer correction. That is, in our hearts, we are to forgive others. But outwardly, we are to express rebuke, correction, for the purpose of restoring a sinner. Now, this is the opposite of what we normally do. Normally, we practice justice on the inside. And on the outside, we give off the impression that we are forgiving. What I mean by that is, inside our hearts, we hold on to bitterness and resentment. But outwardly, we act as if everything's okay. Everything's great. We're reconciled. There's no problems. Outwardly, we forgive. But inwardly, we refuse to forgive because we want justice. The Bible calls us to reverse our usual course of action. Keller says, in reality, inner forgiveness and outer correction work well together. Only if you have forgiven inside can you correct unabusively without trying to make the person feel terrible. Only if you have forgiven already can your motive be to correct the person for God's sake, for justice's sake, and for the community's sake, and for the person's sake. And only if you forgive on the inside will your words have any hope of changing the perpetrator's heart. Otherwise, your speech will be so filled with disdain and hostility that he or she will not listen to you. Ultimately, to forgive on the inside and to rebuke and correct on the outside are not incompatible because they are both acts of love. So we are to forgive graciously, We are to practice justice by not letting sin go unaddressed. And we do this all in order to restore a sinner. The ultimate purpose is for a relationship. Again, we take our cue from the gospel. Christ went to the cross to join the hands of justice and mercy so that we could be with him. Christ went to the cross to join the hands of justice and mercy so that we could be reconciled to him. Colossians 1, 21 and 22 says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. 1 Peter 3, 18 says, Christ died to bring us to God. That's the purpose for which Christ died. So we could have a relationship with God, so that we could be reconciled to God. Likewise, the goal of our forgiveness of others is reconciliation, relationship, the restoration of that person. So this is the unique paradigm of Christian biblical forgiveness. 
This is the divinely orchestrated, transcendent paradigm of forgiveness. We must hold all three of these in balance with each other, in harmony with one another. Now, the reason I say that is because it's very easy to do one or maybe even two of these things and exclude the others. For instance, it is easy to correct and rebuke, to maintain justice, as it were, and to exclude relationship and grace. Maybe you blow up at someone. Maybe you speak a sharp word of rebuke. Well, that's justice, but is that being gracious? No. Is that likely to harm the relationship or help the relationship? If you blow up at someone or speak a sharp word of rebuke, it's likely to harm the relationship. What you've done is you've practiced justice and excluded grace and relationship. Another example. It's easy to tell yourself that you've forgiven someone. I've been so gracious and merciful. But if you want nothing to do with that person afterward, you have excluded the relational aspect. You have not practiced reconciliation. Lastly, you might put the emphasis on relationship. But if you're letting that person persist in sin, are you being truly loving? Oh, I have such a great relationship with that person. Let's just sweep all the sin under the rug. Let's never talk about it again. Are you being truly loving? Adam says, we must not, as Christ certainly did not, otherwise why did he die, accept the other person as he is. To do so, to forget all about sin, unatoned for and unconfessed, not properly dealt with, is not biblical. To accept a sinner as he is means to say that God was wrong in sending Christ to die for sinners in order to change them. God took sin so seriously that he punished his own son with death for sin. Adams is right. We cannot just say, oh, that's just how he is. That's just how she acts. It's not loving to allow a person to persist in a pattern of unrepentant sin. If we are not speaking the truth in love in order to correct and rebuke, we're not acting lovingly, we're acting selfishly. So brothers and sisters, if we are to stay true to the gospel, we have to stay true to the biblical paradigm of forgiveness. We must practice all three of these in balance with one another. Then and only then do we forgive like God. Which leads us to our next topic, the biblical practice of forgiveness. Now, we could talk about this for at least another two sessions, but let's boil it down to five minutes. The main principle is, just as God balances mercy with justice, we must also balance mercy with justice. We are to correct sin. But I do not believe that this means that every single time we see a sin, we are to rebuke that person. Every single time we see something, we got to get in their face and just say, oh, hey, let's talk about this. That would mean literally we are in each other's faces probably every minute of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year. That's not biblical. It's not realistic. It's not practical. We are to balance mercy with justice. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Maybe it was just an, an errant word. Maybe they didn't mean to say that. Maybe they didn't even mean to do that. Or maybe it was such a small thing that it's easily overlooked. In that case, we are to let love cover a multitude of sins. Colossians 3.12 says, we looked at this last week, 
So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Paul talks about having patience, macrothumia, long of anger. That means it takes a lot for you to get upset. It's an inner characteristic that leads to two outward actions. First, bearing with one another. And secondly, forgiving each other. Bearing with means literally enduring. It means literally to put up with. Brothers and sisters, we need to endure one another. We need to put up with one another. We need to be patient with one another. But that doesn't quite answer our question, does it? This begs the question still, when do we rebuke? When do we rebuke? And again, this is not a sermon on rebuke or church discipline, but let's just try to give basic, basic principles. First, we rebuke when a sin is so serious it threatens the relationship. Matthew 18.15 tells us that the purpose of rebuke is to win your brother. To win your brother. Now, if it says you need to win your brother, it suggests that there was a sin that was possibly so frank or so heinous that you have lost your brother. Or at least the relationship has been threatened. It's serious enough that it may have ruptured the relationship. Sometimes all it takes is one sin. A sin that we should not overlook. A sin that we should not let love cover. Because it's so serious, it's so frank, it's so heinous that it threatens to rupture the relationship. When do we rebuke? Secondly, when a sin develops into a pattern of sin. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Now the way to understand this word caught is not, I have caught you in your sin. Or, aha, I have caught you red-handed. For years, that's what I thought it meant, until I actually took a closer look at this. The commentator Longnecker points out that the word should actually be translated caught up in sin. It can be translated overtaken or entrapped. And it suggests a pattern of sin. We should rebuke someone when we see them entrapped in sin, overtaken by sin, when they've made a pattern out of their sin. We should rebuke someone when sin seems to happen repeatedly, over and over again, when they seem unaware of it, or they perhaps seem resistant to repentance to it. Now, those are some practical words about how to balance confronting one another for the sake of justice and also practicing mercy. Let me give us some practical tips on how to actually do the reconciliation. Let's say there was a sin and you want to forgive, you want to reconcile, and you approach that person. What do you do practically? First, Confess your sins one to another. When you reconcile, own up to your sin. Just keep it simple. Hey, I'm sorry I was at fault here and here. Will you forgive me? Keep it simple. Just confess your sin. And when you approach that person, you cannot expect them to confess their sins back. All you can do is your part. If they don't confess back to you, leave it at that. The ball is in their court now. Just do your best and let God do the rest. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes you will see that if you are humble enough to approach that person and confess your sin, that humility will melt them and they will want to confess their sin back to you. That doesn't always happen, but sometimes it does. Secondly, do not make excuses for your behavior. 
when you're reconciling, when you're forgiving, watch out for the phrase, even though, or although. For instance, even though the pressures were great, I shouldn't have done that. That's not a confession. That's an excuse. Thirdly, do not couch it in language which shows you're not sorry. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. For instance, I'm sorry that you were so offended at what I said. Or, I know that you've got a lot to be sorry for, but let me be the first to say that I forgive you. <laughs> That's not biblical. That's not humble. Fourthly, do not destroy good words by bad attitudes. Have the right spirit when you approach that person. Bitter, resentful apology is really apparent, isn't it? A bitter, resentful apology is hypocritical. So how can we tell when we've forgiven someone? Thomas Watson says, when do we forgive others? Answer, when we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief but wish well to them, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. Well, there's one last conundrum I'd like to address about practical forgiveness. When I was pastoring, I was always perplexed by this one phrase. I cannot forgive myself. I can't forgive myself. I'm sure you've heard it. I'm sure Pastor John, Pastor Isaiah have heard it. You know the situation. Person commits a sin. Maybe there's reconciliation, there's forgiveness, there's restoration of relationships. And at the end of the day, the person comes to you and says, I know I've been forgiven. I know that even God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. It's perplexing. What is that all about? Well, I believe there are two answers, one for a believer and one for an unbeliever. Well, there's multiple answers, but we've only got time for two. For the believer, it's a matter of misdirected worship. It is a matter of misdirected worship. You see, I used to be so perplexed at this problem, at this question of I can't forgive myself, until I heard this story in a sermon once. And I'd like to tell you the story. The pastor tells a story about counseling a man that had been unfaithful to his wife, and he admitted it. He committed adultery. His wife even accepted him back. There was reconciliation. There was restoration. There was forgiveness on all sides. But he sat down with the pastor and he said, I know that my wife's forgiven me, the church has forgiven me, even God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. So the pastor probes further, and it turns out that this man grew up in an incredibly prudish family. His parents taught him that sexual sin was the worst possible thing that you could do, and that it was worse than all other kinds of sins. This was the root issue. Even though his parents were dead, he felt that he had disappointed his parents and he could not forgive himself. What drove this man's life was not the grace of God and the gospel. What drove this man's life was living up to his parental expectations. And when he had failed them, he said, I can't forgive myself. It sounds very humble, but it's misdirected worship. The man in this story is worshiping the approval of his parents more than the approval of God. What is it that you most worship? Is it reputation? Is it money? Is it success? It may be different for different people. For instance, let's say you commit an offense and you've lost your reputation. And at the end of the day, you can't get your reputation back. And you say, I can't forgive myself. What do you actually mean? You mean, my true God, my true idol, my true object of worship, my reputation won't forgive me. Or maybe it's money. 
in your offense, you lost a lot of money, and your idol of money won't forgive you. So when a believer says, I can't forgive myself, what you really mean is, I know God forgives me, but it won't forgive me. My idol won't forgive me. My true object of worship won't forgive me. Brothers and sisters, we need to remove the idols from our places of worship. We need to get the idol out of our holy of holies. We need to get the idols off the throne of our lives. If you have misdirected worship, it will distort your understanding of forgiveness. The other way this happens is to an unbeliever who needs the gospel. For the unbeliever, it is a matter of self-image. The issue is really an issue of biblical anthropology, how we view ourselves. An unbeliever may feel that he is too good. An unbeliever may say, I can't forgive myself because he has too high a view of himself. He thinks he's such a good person. You think you're such a good person that you can't be possible of committing a sin like that. I'm such a good person that I'm not capable of something like that. And when you do do something like that, you're surprised. You're in disbelief. You're incredulous. You are surprised at your own sinfulness that you can't forgive yourself. Also, an unbeliever may feel that he is too bad. The other way unbelievers can't forgive themselves is because you think you're so bad, you feel that you are not forgivable. What you really mean is you don't feel worthy to be forgiven. You want forgiveness, but only if you feel worthy enough to receive it. What you really mean is, I want forgiveness, but I want to earn it. I don't want charity. I want to earn it. It's really because you want to achieve forgiveness by your own performance. You want to make yourself worthy enough to be forgiven. So you say, I can't forgive myself. You forget that forgiveness is an act of grace. Again, the answer is the gospel. The gospel tells us that we are more sinful than we could ever imagine and that God is more gracious than we could ever imagine. Lastly, I'd like to talk about the biblical power of forgiveness. Forgiveness is hard. Sometimes it seems impossibly hard. How on earth am I going to forgive like God forgave me? The answer is the gospel. The gospel tells us that we have spiritual poverty. We are poor. We are spiritually bankrupt. We are spiritually lowly. Matthew 5 verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, sometimes you can't forgive someone because you look down on them. Now, you don't say that, but in your mind, you think, I can't forgive that person because if that were me, I never would have done something like that. I never would have treated me that way. What would Paul's response be to you? 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. A humble heart knows that it is the chief of sinners. The spiritually bankrupt heart knows that it is the chief of sinners. And if you know you are the chief of sinners, you cannot look down on anybody else. On the other hand, you have gospel wealth. Romans 10 verse 12 says, For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Brothers and sisters, we are not only spiritually poor, we are spiritually rich. We have all of God's riches. We have the fullness of the Father's love. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter what anybody does to you. It doesn't matter what anybody says to you. Your identity is secure in the love of the King. And that love will give you a spiritual treasury from which you can forgive. So brothers and sisters, as we bring our series to a close... I want to challenge us, myself included, this holiday season. 
you know, I don't know what your plans are, but we may be seeing people, perhaps family, perhaps friends, over the holiday season, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, that maybe you've had a hard time with, that maybe you need to reconcile with. Maybe you need to forgive or you need to be forgiven. Maybe you need to confess. Brothers and sisters, I want to challenge us. Don't just be hearers of the word. Be doers of the word. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning and you want to reconcile with someone, let me just tell you that that's the wrong place to start. Where you really need to start is you need to be reconciled first and foremost to God. You need to be reconciled to God, the ultimate judge. Then and only then, when you're reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ, will you be able to forgive like you want to forgive. Be forgiven so that you can be a forgiver. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, this is difficult. This is so hard. We need you. We need the gospel. We need the power of your spirit to help us to forgive like this. Help us, Lord, to be gracious. Help us to seek justice. Help us to do it all for the sake of relationship, just as you have done so for us. And Lord, I pray even now as we take of this meal, Lord, we are so grateful that we have been given so much, not just physically, but spiritually. Help us as we eat of this food, that you would help us to be loving with one another, gracious, kind, forbearing, and forgiving. Lord, may it be all to your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.